Support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com, which puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video, and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with set designer David Corrance. There are things that my aesthetic tends to bend to. I put those in my home and not necessarily in an environment I'm doing for a client. Here's Debbie Millman. When David Corrance was little, he spent a lot of time moving furniture around in his childhood bedroom. Little did anyone know back then that he'd grow up to be one of Broadway's most celebrated set designers. Corin's designs are as varied as they are gorgeous, from the stages of Hamilton and war paint to restaurant interiors and performance stages for Kanye West and Lady Gaga. Corin's is a master. He transports the audience in time and space creating moods and spectacles that envelop us in another world. Today I'm going to talk to David Corrins about his impressive career on Broadway, his design process, and his latest projects. David Corrins, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. Wow, that actually made my heart race. I was a little bit nervous coming into this, but that, you said a lot of words that made me feel very uncomfortable. Really? Yeah. Gorgeous? Master? Master? Really? I mean, there's a lot. Okay. Thank you. That was amazing. (laughs) I feel like we're done. That was great. (laughs) David. Yes. When you were in high school, I understand you became class president by virtue of a write-in campaign. Where were you in 2016? (laughs) (laughs) It is a true story about the write-in vote. And it brings up a little bit of shame and guilt when you ask me that question because there was a woman who was freshman, sophomore, and junior year, the class president, elected, proper. And she did, I think, a good job. And we all didn't know better. And we didn't know what even the elected officials of our class did or were supposed to do. But when it came time to do the senior class voting, I was a little bit of a wise-ass surprise – uh, My eyebrows and, just shot to and, the ceiling. And I was not sure that the two people who had announced their candidacy were going to do anything different or beyond the status quo. And so we went to the assembly and I raised my hand and I said, I, could I run? And the principal who didn't love me, he didn't hate me, but he didn't love me, said, no, you had to you know, announce your candidacy. In this can-. 
And I just said, I'm sorry, we just heard these two speeches. They were not that interesting. They didn't say that they would do anything for our class that seemed interesting. And really the only real big thing at play was the class trip, which I thought was like a big deal. We all thought it was a big deal. And so I said, could I run as a write-in vote? I didn't really know what that meant, but he said, I guess. And so I went to my homeroom and I wrote out like the three things I thought I could accomplish, including this great class trip. Don't ask me where because I don't really remember where to, but it was an important trip. And I wrote those things out and I went to the dating myself mimeograph machine. Those blue with the blue ink that smelled amazing. Yeah, that I think for sure made everyone sterile, those. (laughs) And I ran off a bunch of copies and I handed them out to everyone's homeroom. And at the end of the day when they counted the votes, this is over the loudspeaker, and by right and vote, David Corrins. And I won. But the real shame and guilt is because what we didn't know is that when you graduate, the senior class president is responsible for planning the reunions in perpetuity, which is a disaster if you think about it. Absolutely. Who knew at 17 that that was a thing that you had to do? And I basically left town and didn't really ever do that because I knew that someone had taken care of it and they planned the 5 and the 10 and the 15. I just recently went back from, went back from my 20th. What was that like for you? It was amazing. Actually, I mean, I had no idea what it would be like, but like the little guy who used to kind of get picked on became the chief of police in my hometown. (laughs) And some of like the big bullies became cops underneath him. I mean, it was actually pretty amazing. I was a weird hybrid of, you know, a real athlete, like a very serious athlete. And also I was in the choir and the band and the like. So I did a lot of different things. And so I didn't really have a full group I was part of. And we came from a very, very clicky school. And I was one of like three Jews growing up in this place, you know, the other two being my sisters. So uh, it was a hard time for me. There was a whole lot of like, you kill Jesus. And like, there's a lot. It was a really tricky time. And also, I'm one of like two people from my town that moved to New York City because from where I am from, moving to the city was moving to Boston. So when I went back for the 20th, like, it was enough time to reconnect with these people. But also a lot of time had passed. And so it was interesting to see how we all became adults. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you were a drum major beginning in the seventh grade. And later in high school, you played multiple instruments in both the concert band and the jazz band. You were also in choir, as you mentioned. And now you're responsible for creating the sets for one of the most popular musicals of all time. Has music always been in your blood a bit? Do you still play anything today? I was actually the drum major only for my junior and senior year, but I was in the marching band from the seventh grade all the way through. Oh, for, and that, forgive my inaccuracy and that was here. a that was a big deal. Um, marching in the high school marching band when you were a, a, you know before you were in high school that was a really big deal. Was music part of my life all the way through? You know, my mother and father had my two older sisters and I take piano lessons, and I lasted for about three months or six months. Do you regret that now? No, I, I don't live with many regrets. I don't regret it because when the fifth grade entry point of band came, I knew that I wanted to play the saxophone. I don't really know why. Both of my sisters were in the band, and I chose the saxophone because I thought that was cooler. And I tried really hard, and I was pretty good. And I quickly moved to tenor saxophone, and I tried to do whatever I could to um, make myself indispensable to the marching band. And they needed the different instruments, so I picked it up. And when I went to college, a guy who was cooking food... And he was a weird, shifty character, left a guitar, happened to ask me if he could store his guitar in my closet. 
And one night when everyone that lived in the house went out, he stole all of our bicycles and left town. And all that was left of him was a vapor trail and this guitar. And in that moment, I decided I'm going to learn how to play the guitar. And I picked it up and I learned from going out and getting a chord book of like the Beatles and Bob Marley and, you know, and Bob Dylan, as you do. And I did that and I realized in that moment my entire musical career up to that point, I was unable to sing along. Everything I had played up to that point was with my mouth. And I really got into playing the guitar heavily. And so I still play the guitar and I have a 12-year-old daughter. And when she was around six, she started playing the piano and I would plink along the piano and try and learn the songs along with her. And I play the piano now like I play the rhythm guitar, which is not well, but too tempo. And do you sing along with the piano playing? Oh, my God. That's the only reason to do it, right? Uh, yes. And so I don't know that music has so much informed my design work, but I certainly, you know, I can still read music. I appreciate it. I'm a big fan. I love working in the music industry. And I try and play. It's one of the things that really relaxes me. And I love the improvisational part of it. And it is, to me, exactly like playing on a sports team. You know, the only two things that I find are like exactly like that are playing on a team sport as you're driving down the, you know, the court or up the field or whatever it is. Or if you're in an improvisational band and you're finding your way through music, they're basically the same thing to me. So I do see that. And I think that theater and design are like that, team sports. Now, you almost had a career in sports medicine. <laughs> Wow. How do you even know that? Seriously, is that in print somewhere? That's so crazy. I, I have my ways. Wow. Um, I did. I mean, I was a very, very competitive athlete. And I had, um, I think we've talked about this before, I had a really not great audition experience in high school, which drove me crying, kicking and screaming out of performance. But I loved the performing arts. I'll ask you about arts. that in a minute. When I went to college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I sort of thought I wanted to do athletics, but I went to a Division One college. I was on the track team for a while. And so I really, I had been injured a lot and I had recuperated a lot and I loved the body and I was actually pretty good at anatomy and physiology. And so I thought I would do that, but I didn't really see a life doing it. I think I was interested in that class, but it never felt like a career. It's so interesting that you had this avid interest in in the body given how many actors have said being on your stages makes them feel as if this is the place they are supposed to be. Well, yeah, I mean, that that I think is the single greatest compliment I've ever gotten in my career is a performer saying to me, I don't have to do the the dramaturgical work because I know who I am and where I am being on your stage. And I don't get that all the time, but I have gotten it before. And that's a, actually a huge honor and amazing. But when you create a space, it's all about figuring out how people move through space. And some of the most interesting spaces are the ones where there are huge physical challenges like the room we're sitting in now, mm. which is hot and tight and cramped and we have to do all these weird things to get to the microphone. And, and that is some of the most interesting things um, happen when you put some kind of an obstacle in front of someone. So yeah, the physical space thing was always a big deal. But I always have thought if I was not a designer or a creative director or whatever the thing is that I am right now, I would like to go into medicine. Really? I thought you also had a, a, a real talent for house painting. <laughs> uh, I do. But that's a little <laughs> dangerous. And, I, you know, I've painted a lot of houses in my life. Primetime painting. Uh, oh, my God. You did it. 
<laughs> Can I ask you later for my social security number because I forgot it? And tell us about prime time painting. Um, okay, so we're going in order. So my dear friend, best man at my wedding, Darren, got a job painting houses. I don't know. Maybe I was a sophomore in high school. He might have been a senior. And he learned how to cold call houses by walking around and knocking on doors and estimating about the amount of paint that it would take to paint a house and how long it would take and all these things. That's really smart. Yeah. And, you know, he worked for a big kind of national company that they basically took student uh, labor and they taught them how to do it. And they took a percentage of it. And he asked me if I would paint on his painting crew. And it was a great summer job. It mixed brushwork, which I had never really done, but it was kind of exciting, physical activity, you didn't work if it rained, you know, you were outside. It was lovely. It was kind of social, kind of physical. And I did it, and we did it for a whole summer. We were pretty successful. And then I said to him at some point, the only thing that this company is doing is essentially giving us an insurance policy. We do all the other work. We move the ladders. We move the paint kits. We interface with the clients. We do all of this stuff. What do you say we strike out on our own? I know nothing about insurance, but if you figure out the insurance stuff... I'll figure out how to talk to the clients. And we got a third person who would, you know, be our third man on the team. And he did, and I did, and we did, and we created primetime painting. And I think I was 16 or 17. And we um, were incredibly successful. We didn't have to give the 20% that we gave to the other company, to anyone else. And we made a whole lot of money. And the next year, instead of one crew of three, we got six other people, and we made three crews of three, in which we then took the 20% from the other guys. And, a mogul uh, is born. And, we, and I, I was the color guy. I would knock on the doors and say, like, hi, my name is David. Can I interest you in a no-obligation, free estimate on your painting your house? And, of course, they would come out, and they would look at the next-door neighbor's house, and they would look at their house, and they would look at the other next-door neighbor's house, and they would say, sure. And it took about a half an hour. We'd sort of put rough prices together, and we were really fast and physical, and we could always beat the budget so we could pocket the money. And if you're there in a neighborhood for a couple of days or four days painting a house, the neighbors see that house looking really great, and it sort of took off. And we painted hundreds of houses. And it was, you know, three or four years we did it. I feel like I was getting close to making more money than my parents in three months. And it was a great job that allowed that's me like to... a lot. Your father was a doctor. <clears throat> your mom was a teacher. Well, that's true. I mean, it was a good... Wow. It was a good job. I mean, my dad was a podiatrist, which is a, doc, a doctor, but he... I mean, we weren't like raking it in and we didn't grow up wealthy, but we... You know, you can make a lot of money painting houses if you've got a lot of people working with you. And it was super exciting. And it did teach me how to be entrepreneurial. But also, it was a lot of the things I already knew, as we talked about. It was teamwork. And it was like, I mean, what more incentive is if you can beat the budget? You know, if you can beat the budgeted time, you get to pocket the money. It's a really good idea. What made you decide to abandon that business? Uh, I went to college. I was a in-the-closet theater major. And when I got an internship at Williamstown, and Williamstown Theater Festival happens in the summer, and I jetted off to an internship. Since you mentioned that pivotal moment in high school about not getting a part that you'd auditioned for that you wanted very badly, share that story with us. So I was a performer, uh, sort of, you know, as much of a performer as you could be. In my high school... The high school choral teacher slash drama teacher was classically trained pianist, and she would write 
a full-length Christmas play in which she would embroider all the classic Christmas songs into every um, season. And then she would license and produce a full-length musical in the spring. And I got involved in this, and I really loved it. And everyone in the choir had to be in the Christmas concert, and she would cast the parts. But everyone had an option to audition for the spring musical, and I did. And I was in Man of La Mancha, and I was in Our Town, and I was in uh, Sound of Music as, like, bit parts but getting bigger and bigger. And my senior year, we were doing Carousel, and I loved the show, and I wanted to be Billy Bigelow. And at that time, you didn't prepare really audition material that was anything other than what was in the show. And so I prepared the soliloquy, which is insane to do. And I think I really did a great, great job auditioning. I did not get the part. I got the part of Jigger Cragen, which is the bad guy. And I was so crestfallen. My ego was so bruised. I was also the president of the concert choir. I felt like I was really made for the part. I really wasn't made for the part. The guy that got the part was really fantastic. But I was so hurt that the choral teacher said, I think you should try and talk to Mr. Barnes, the math teacher, but also the guy that built all the scenery, and see if you like doing that as another way to kind of like, you know, take the the Bui, devastating Bui your, defeat. Your off. fragile <laughs> ego up. Exactly. And I went and I did that, and I kind of like helped move the scenery around backstage in between scenes. And I didn't really think much else about it until I went to college and I wanted to, you know, stay in the arts, but I did not want to ever audition again. And I was looking at the course directory and I saw a course called Beginning Techniques in Design, which was like a theater 100 course. And it taught a little bit about lighting, scenery, costumes and sound. And there was a very nervous first year grad student named Troy Howery. And he was there fresh from Canada. It was his first year. And He asked me if I would assist him on something. And he said, you know, you're pretty good at this. You need to sit down and draft a plate of drafting that you will be proud of for not this moment, but for five years. It needs to be way outside of your scope of what you think you can do right now. And it doesn't matter how long it will take, but you have to do this and you have to suffer through this exercise. And I sat down and I drafted a kind of realistic interior wall with doors and molding and crown molding and baseboard, and it was a disaster. And with the photos of the things that I had assisted on and this plate of drafting, he said to me, you should now apply to Williamstown Theater Festival. And I applied with that portfolio and got in. Now, I think it was around that time you had your very first realization about the power of design, which included a puddle in a parking lot. Can you tell us the story and what it made you realize? I had been to Williamstown in the summer of 1997 as an intern. Uh, I returned in 1998, and I was driving through a flooded parking lot, and the water splashed up, you know, in a violent surge on either side of my car, and I could feel it hitting the bottom of the car. And in that moment, I literally had like a light bulb aha moment in which I thought everything in the world needs to be designed And I know that because the drainage of this parking lot is designed like crap. (laughs) And it's kind of like that moment where you can't unring that bell. But in that moment, I literally thought, so what else can I design other than theater? And that was really um, the beginning of the end. 
let's go back to Williamstown. You leave Williamstown. You then co-found the Edge Theater Company in New York City. That was in 2001. And you supported new writers you wanted to see produced. Kurt Vonnegut came. Edward Albee came. You were 25 years old at the time. What were you doing to get the attention of these literary titans? Well, I mean, in my life, almost all roads have led to Williamstown. In that early pocket of time that I was there, I met not only some of my best friends, I met the woman who I would also co-found a theater company with. Her name is Carolyn Cantor. And she was one of kind of four incredibly talented fellows there, directing assistants. I was a design assistant. We all met. We all worked together. And when we moved to New York, Carolyn, who was from New York and had a lot of connections to people who were seeing theater and being patrons of theater, we had made a lot of allegiances to playwrights. And so many playwrights had gone through the ringer of writing and rewriting and revising their shows for the hope that an artistic director would produce it. And we looked at each other and said, you know, when you read a play, do you know if you want to work on it or not? Like, warts and all, are you interested in the kind of ugly mess that is the story or not? And there's a lot that gets cleaned up and worked on in a rehearsal room and then in the tech process. And so we just said, what if, and Adam Rapp was the uh, the first playwright, he had become a friend, we had workshopped one of his plays up in Williamstown, and he was just a star on the rise. And we said, Adam, this is a crazy idea. Do you think we could raise money and produce your play, which was a play called Finer Noble Gases. And he said yes. So we rented a theater and with mainly Carolyn's connections and a little, like 95.5, we sent out a letter and we tried to raise some money. In between the time of sending out the letter, Adam's play got chosen for the Humana Festival, which is a big deal for a young playwright. And he said, I'm so sorry, I have to do this. Um, So we were left with a theater rented and money raised and nothing to produce. And so we thought, what could we produce that we could get the rights to quickly and that we would never have the opportunity to do? And Carolyn had the idea of doing Calderon de la Barca's Life's a Dream, which is a classic because in New York, unless you're working at the Roundabout or Lincoln Center, you're never going to get chosen to do a, a revival. So we did it and we actually made money which is an impossibility, but it was a really beautiful, thoughtful, poetic production. She directed and I designed and we co-produced. And during that time period, Adam's play had gotten produced and he had another play that got produced at a fancy, fancy production at ART that he was unsatisfied with. And he came back to us and said, "I, I would like you to come to Boston, see this production. And do you think you want to produce the New York premiere of it? And we decided we would do it again. We would write another letter and we would raise money And we would produce a play called Stone Cold Dead Serious. And the play was hugely successful. And it got a big, mostly positive review above the fold in the New York Times. And everyone showed up, including first in line, Edward Albee. And that's when Kurt Vonnegut showed up and everyone else. Carolyn and I eventually got agents from that experience. And we decided we would continue to produce. And so we went on to produce four or five more plays. And it was a really exciting, inspiring time, but it was also, we were up on a high wire and it was very scary and we were not making any money from it and we needed to have those shows be successful because 
we actually did some incredibly fiscally irresponsible things. Like what? Like we didn't raise enough money to pay for the costs. And so we took out a personal bank line of credit in our names that we had to pay back. And so, which is like the most ridiculous thing to do. And um, we successfully did that from 2001 to 2005. Yeah, my heart stopped beating for a second there. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that is really being committed. Yeah. I mean, if you're not going to invest in your, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm not sure if Carolyn really knew she's fairly risk adverse. She was, I'm not sure how much she understood the profundity of that, but I certainly did. And I was like, yeah, we'll take out a bank line of credit. Like that was a thing that I thought would be okay. And it, it wound up being okay. But when I think about it now, how Sometimes far away from $50,000 I had, which is yeah. about 49,999 repeating, that's about as far as away as I was. It's probably better that you didn't know then how what a big deal it was because you wouldn't have done it. And True. then, you know. But by the way, you know, I started a little design company and I basically run my design company the same way. You started your company in 2004, David Corrin's Design. Right. And you design way more than Broadway. You design theater, film, television galleries, restaurants, hotels, interiors, rock concerts. I mean, how did you go from doing bootstrap theater productions where you were cleaning toilets and taking tickets to working with Lady Gaga and Kanye West. Well, I mean, there was a long way in between. Not really. I mean, a couple of years. I that's, guess that's, that's true. not a long time. It feels like a long way. Uh, <laughs> you know, I realized that one plus one equals three or four or five and not two. When you're doing overnights, which I did many, 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 many overnight work calls or working through the night... If you have to lift up a piece of four by eight, three quarter inch plywood and schlep it across the theater and screw it down, I had muscles enough to do that. But if I had someone helping me, I could do it three times as fast. And so what I would always do is look at the bare minimum I needed to live on and I would make sure I got paid that amount of money and the rest I would pay for help. And I just did that over and over and over again so that my... $500 show, which was a thing that you could do in 1999 or 2000 in New York City, looked like a $5,000 show. And a $5,000 show looked like a $50,000 show. So I thought to myself, I, look, I really took a very honest look at myself and my skill set. And I thought, what are my weaknesses and what are my strengths? And how can I cover my weaknesses? And can I possibly pay money to a person or several people to cover my weaknesses and my roommate from the 1997 internship at Williamstown Theater Festival was a guy named Rod Lemon. And I just finally said to him, what would it cost for me to hire you? Because he's a genius at figuring out how things get built. And he could draft and he could build models and we were like a yin and yang. And he gave me a number, and I now knew that whatever that whatever I did and whatever jobs I worked on, I knew I needed to get him that number. And it took me 11 years to make more money than him. Wow. But that's, in the 11th year, I turned the corner. <laughs> yeah. How long has it been now? How many years? Uh, well, that was 2004. So you've been investing. You were investing in yourself for that entire time. Yeah. I mean, throughout those 11 years, we added people. Um, we went from... Rod and I sharing a computer and a drafting table in our East Village apartment to another office and now the office that we're in currently and now we have 11 people and we've been as many as 18. We sort of shrink and grow to whatever we need, but Rod's still there. I just left the design meeting with him. 
you passionately wanted to be involved with Hamilton and pitch director Thomas Kale that you would be the James Madison to his <laughs> Jefferson. And we can understand why now. But back then, before it was even off-Broadway, when it was the 10 people in a room, what made you want to be involved so badly? Um, there's probably a lot of ways to answer that question, but the the short one is they're my friends. And um, and by they, I mean Lynn, Tommy, Andy, Alex. Uh, so you knew them before? I did. And How and, did you meet? So, you know, Tommy and I actually met during the Edge Theater Company days. We met on the steps of the East Fort, you know, of the New York Theater Workshop on East 4th Street. Uh, he came and supported some Edge Theater Company shows. I came and supported his downtown theater company. We sort of knew of each other. And so as the show started to coagulate and come together, I sort of thought like, okay, Tommy – Seriously, like when it comes time, call me. And then I got a phone call from the public theater and they said, we think we're going to do Hamilton and Tommy wants to interview you. Interview? Interview. I think we were in tech for a show that we were working on and I sort of thought, what is this going to be? And I got the music and I got the script and I listened to it obsessively. And I think at the time my oldest daughter was maybe four or six. I don't know. The days, the years. Um, And I – Played the opening number for her. I became kind of obsessed with the show. I really liked it. And I, and I played the opening number. I'm not going to give up my shot? Uh, no. The opening number was like the Alexander Hamilton number. Oh, and, okay. and I remember her at six, let's say, saying, um, put a pencil to my ten- temple, connected it to my brain. And I thought, We're, this is oh, – wow. like she was super into it. And I did a, a lot of work in preparation for that interview for Tommy. Um, including lots of research, some sketches, and I thought about the show a lot. And I never really try and do that because I always feel like directors are halfway fishing for ideas, but I didn't care. I I went in there trying to get the job. And I did say to him, I think that, like, Lynn rose to, like, you know, pretty big stardom within the Heights. And I think that people think on some level, like, you've hooked your wagon to his star. And, like, let me be your Madison to... You're Jefferson. Like, let me be your right-hand man. I can do this. Like, Andy and I had just done a revival of Annie. Like, I was like, we're young, scrappy, and hungry. Like, who else are you going to hire? Like, I will not throw away my shot. Literally, I was like quoting the show. Right. And I did try to, like, at least plant a seed in his mind. Like, boy, will you regret it if you don't do this. (laughs) And did you bring along any of your what is now legendary models with you? I know that you— I brought no models. But I did— um, I did propose the turntables in the first meeting. You know, we've talked about that a lot, but... Tell me, just because um, I'm afraid that there might be some listeners that aren't familiar with what a turntable on a stage actually is. It's not an actual record player for those that might be That's wondering. right. Although so, Lynn was so excited when we proposed that we have two turntables on the floor. And he's like, two turntables and a microphone. That's so exciting. No, <laughs> turntables are a big, huge machine that rotates the stage in a circle. And... We have in Hamilton a turntable, and then on the outside of it, we have a donut, which has a big hole in it. So it's a, essentially a three-foot section that can rotate left or right, and the turntable can rotate counterclockwise or clockwise. And we can, we can adjust the speed, the tempo, the starting, the acceleration, the deceleration, and all that perfectly timed to the music. And I didn't say to him, I think it should have a turntable in it, but what I said to him was, I cannot shake this cyclical motion of the show. There's something about this um, Aaron Burr-Hamilton cyclical relationship and Hamilton was swept off the island of Nevis by a hurricane and he gets into this storm 
And I thought, there's something about this cinematic, sweeping story that takes place over 30 years. It could be really beautiful. And I think there's this thing where there's a lot of people watching and there's a lot of people listening and there's like this room where it happens thing where like you are either in it and you're complicit or you're not. And I thought that the turntable would be a really good way to tell that story. And Tommy was like, yeah, no, that's not yeah, going to happen. He was not outright, that interested. Yeah. But I guess he was interested enough to go down the road with me. And they said, if you can give me 10 moments in the show where we could use a turntable, we'll think about it. And I sat down and I drew for them 10 moments. And they said, yeah, actually, that sounds really compelling and interesting. We'll think about that. We should we should try it. Like, let's storyboard further. And then they uh, then we did it. True or false? On Hamilton, it's been reported that you parsed through 33 different colors of brick to find the right shade. Yes. So that's an example, as we talked about how we got to the end result of Hamilton, where when you design, you make hugely obvious choices like the turntable where people say, oh, God, no performers are walking, but yet they're still moving. That's an obvious David Corrin steps on stage moment. But then there's 33 variations of brick where no one gives any thought to that at all. But brick comes in so many different shades, as do people, to red, to terracotta, to brown, to beige. What's it going to be? And how are we going to carve out 25,000 plus words and 51 songs with very little physical scenery and be able to see these actors in front of this wall and have no backing wall? With no wallpaper or no, you know, interior texture. Uh, so it also led to a lot of discoveries with the costume design because the parchment clothing that most of the ensemble wears for, throughout the show was in direct response to the brick and what it was going to be and how we were going to be able to see people um, and carve them out with their, with their shapes and etch them out in front of the wall. In addition to the physical elements of the set, you also take a strong psychological approach to your designs and how they convey theme and other subconscious elements to the audience. And for the 2010 production of the Pee Wee Herman show, you crafted each step to be 10 inches tall so that when Paul Rubens' Pee Wee was going up and down, he would be able to, quote, clump up and down like he was a small child. Yeah, I actually think we, we went with higher than 10 inches. I think we went with 12 on the peewee steps because the normal rise to run is 8 inches is the rise. And it's a, a thing I've been thinking a lot about architectural standards. I think a lot about how table heights are the right height and seats are the right height and light switches and toilet bowls and all those things, curbs, so that we don't fall down and go boom. I right. think about it a lot. And then I think the cool thing about theater, we really get to mess with those proportions all the time. So in opera, you might make a six-inch high step so that they can glide down without breaking voice. Yeah, that was an easy one with Pee Wee. On Hamilton, during intermission, eight feet of wall is added to the set to convey the impression of the nation being built. I did not notice that when I was at the show. Um, but... <laughs> But it, I would have wanted to. You know, right. No one notices no it, one, by the way. So, so why add these layers even when most audience members won't consciously realize um, they're there? We add the eight feet because the, the country has progressed. The kind of big theatrical gesture of the show is that we see the scaffolding being built that the builders would use to build the foundation of the country. 
and the foundation being this kind of unmade brick wall. And we, Tommy and I just talked about there's such a huge moment in the show. We're building towards independence. There's this war. We finally win the war. It's this cathartic, massive revelation. And then we go home and we have to start to govern. And what does it mean to kind of sew this nation together? And we thought there's a whole lot of progress that's happened. You know, we're a big industrious country, you know, really getting its stride. And we needed to show that somehow. So if we're doing this brick wall that's in the middle of being built, we should add layers to it because it would sort of not ring true. To, so we add that we change the whole profile and no one sees it because they're busy buying merch or going to the restroom or talking to their friend or taking selfies. And when they come back, it has changed. And we also change out a lot of the props. They go from building and utilitarian and warlike uh, objects like guns and muskets and things. And we change them to maps and books and China and no one sees it. I mean, they really, no one sees it so much so that when we were in tech rehearsal and we had spent, I don't know, three weeks on the set, Tommy and I said, we should bring the actors downstage and have them look and let them see the walls fly in. And we did. And they were all like, huh, I had no idea. I just spent the last 300 hours here and I had no idea. But maybe they felt it. Last year, you had four musicals on Broadway at once. And they could not be more different. They were Hamilton, Dear Evan Hansen, Warpaint, and Bandstand. Given how diverse they are topically and culturally, how do you manage going from one show to another stylistically? Well, stylistically, it's easy. I came up studying designers, and I always thought, oh, if you want to do a realistic interior, you get so-and-so. And And if you want to do a big, abstract, muscular thing, you get the other so-and-so or whatever it is. And I always wanted to be the designer who didn't have a specific aesthetic that I applied to a thing, but rather really try and be a chameleon and ask myself, what does the show want it to be? And so Bandstand, Dear Evan Hansen, Warpaint, and Hamilton could not be more different shows. I mean, Dear Evan Hansen and Hamilton are like the opposite ends of the spectrum. Opposite ends. They have a different set of challenges. They had all sorts of um, different things in their DNA. And I'm really, really proud of the fact that I get so many text messages and calls and emails and people say, oh, I saw such and such. That was your set, right? And I say, oh, no, that wasn't. And they say, oh, it looked like a Corrin's. And the things that they send to me are so different and varied. And that really makes me happy. You know, Frank Gehry, who is an incredible seminal artist, you kind of look at a Frank Gehry building, you kind of know, oh, that's probably a Gehry building. And I'm really excited by the fact that I don't have a style that I impose on something, but rather try and like listen to what the show wants it to be. But you have to really resist instincts to use similar motifs or ideas when something is successful. I mean, listen, I only have like three ideas, but I mask them with really good veneers. So, you know, it's true, but I think that There are things that my aesthetic tends to bend to toward, and I put those in my home and not necessarily in an environment I'm doing for a client. I was really surprised to learn that despite the fact that you had four shows on Broadway last year, that theater only accounts for about 25% of the work that you're doing in your design firm. Right. So you're working with musicians. You work with Kanye West. He asked you to turn the album My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy into a stage show. You work with Lady Gaga, Bruno Mars. I know that Kanye West wanted a new design for each city his tour visited. (laughs) True. And you were building sets weekly. So what was that like? What was it like to collaborate with Kanye? Working with Kanye was incredible. He said, let's just start by sharing images. And he sent me 
50 images, let's say, and I, we all trade in the currency of ideas and we trade in the currency of visual pictures. And he sent me probably 46 out of 50 that I had never seen before. Wow. And I was shocked and excited and I didn't know how he was doing it and where he was getting them. And I thought, what websites do you know? What books do you know? Did you find out? No. <laughs> but I, you know, banked those images and he didn't really have the vocabulary to talk about the worlds that he wanted to conjure. And a lot of what we do, you know, I've, I liken my job to one of a therapist in which we talk a lot about what you're going through and what you're hoping for and what you're dreaming about and all those things. And then I kind of conjure out of people words or adjectives or emotions. And then I try and make physical spaces or experiences around those things. And he didn't really have the words to describe what he wanted, but he was showing me pictures of smoke underwater and huge cosmic storms and things like that. And I realized that he was really connected to you know, the four furies and elemental things. And if you look at his work, he's all about like an obelisk or one huge muscular thing or standing on top of a mountain. And years later, I've had some interactions with him and I know that he's getting closer and closer and closer to this idea of like deifying himself. And his most recent tour, you know, the evolution went from the first design I ever did for him or the second was a big, huge artifact wall, which was a very deep relief kind of sculpture that looked like it was a, you know, 2,000-year-old thing that was dug up and hung behind him. He moved on to standing on top of an obelisk. He moved on to standing on top of a mountain. He moved on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And now his most recent tour was him literally floating on a deck above people who were reaching up and kind of praying to him. And he sort of self-actualized as this deity I don't know that he has the verbal language, but he certainly has the visual language. And that was maddening to create a new set every single city. But it was thrilling to be able to do it and um, to bring that message to a lot of people was cool. The Taylor Swift line in the song where she's dissing Kanye West about his slanted stage, was that yours? It was not mine. Okay. Thank God, because... (laughs) Taylor, if you're out there, call me. <laughs> you don't want to. You don't want to be the direct, the designer of that stage, or the Becky with the. Or, may, or maybe you do. I mean, not the Becky, but the, <laughs> but the slant stage. I don't know. That's all right. <laughs> Tell me what it was like to work with Lady Gaga. What that collaboration was like. Uh, thrilling, actually. My first meeting with her and my first meeting with Mariah Carey were the same. It was like, come over and sit on my couch and let's talk. And Gaga talked a lot about where the particular album that we were working on came from and it came from her passed away aunt who she never met but was a huge influence in her life and she talked about the character of Joanne and what the music meant and where it and it was a very very deep psychological personal dive for her and I said just talk to me about your aunt and like what do you remember and she told me about pictures hanging on the wall and how her parents talked about her and all this stuff and by the end of the conversation Um, She had told me how she was going to start wearing this hat that she wears on the album cover, but how Joanne represented for her kind of like a beam of sunlight and a person who could do no wrong in her family and that would leave behind her a trail of flowers, let's Mm -hmm. say. So there, the job of the designer is to figure out, does she mean literal flowers? Is she, does she really want flowers? Is it about pink? Is it about softness? Is it about, you know, what does that mean? And then... 
the worlds that we created together were, you know, electrical flowers, and then we pivoted and made a different thing, a fiber optic thing. But it was really interesting to hear her talk in starting from a place of real raw emotion and then, like, hopes and dreams. And then kind of like a secondary aside is what is the physical space for this concert going to look like? You have been also working quite a bit in television and now in restaurants. And restaurants, I could see the connection because you're literally physically in a space. You're inhabiting a space. With television, it feels very two-dimensional. And I'm wondering if you have a fundamentally different approach to designing for TV versus theater or a space that you're actually inhabiting. Yes. The thing about television is it flattens out. And mostly you see things kind of in a 270 degree, you know, there's a bunch of cameras in a room all pointing one general direction. And there are cross shots and all those things, but you hardly ever turn the camera around and see the other part of it. And so you could make a whole big, beautiful environment for film or television, and you could never see it, or it could be in soft focus in the background. So I attack it in that I want to make the world as real and as complete as possible because I've been burned before and they you think the back wall is going to be the hero when it's really all about the ashes and the ashtray. And so I just attack it like it's going to be 360 degree and every single inch of the space has to be re- camera ready. Um, but with television, you do think it's going to flatten out and you have to create depth and layers much more than in theater where you can individually light every single layer and you've got 70 feet before the first person sees it. You know, you just have you just think about what the camera does differently than what a human eye does. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you would like to design the opening ceremony for the Olympics. Anything else that is on your wish list? I would like to design the opening ceremony of the Olympics. I would also like to help create the show. I think the idea of trying to tell the story of the United States, which inevitably I would probably have a crack at doing the U.S. Olympics, would be an interesting one because how do you three-dimensionalize history in the story of the country or the city that we're in? And, you know, I've had some experience doing that, but I like to think about it in a more holistic approach. My last question for you, David, is when you posted on social media several years ago, you asked... Would you rather live in the world of Tim Burton or the world of Dr. Seuss? I love both of those artists so much. And I'm not going to give you a non-answer. I'm going to give you a real answer. I am currently working on the musical Beetlejuice, um, which is terrifying because Tim Burton's worlds are so specific and so iconic. I'm going Dr. Seuss. Ooh, brave. Because I've gotten to reconnect with Dr. Seuss through my kids. And there is a simpler time for me attached to Dr. Seuss and some profound life lessons involved there that I think I'm going there today. Okay. Uh, I spent a lot of my day working in the world of Tim Burton, and I love it, but I'm going to Seuss. David, thank you so much for joining me on Design Matters today, and thank you for doing so much to make our world a more interesting place. Thanks for having me. To learn more about what David Corrins is up to, head on over to his website, davidcorrins.com. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. 
For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie-millman. That's d.rip slash debbie-millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com. 